Hey, everybody. This episode is brought to you by our proud title sponsor, NHL Sense Arena, the next generation of off-ice hockey training for players and goalies. Look, we know how much you invest in your children's hockey development, the early mornings, the travel, and let's not forget the expenses of training for hockey camps, private ice time, the general expenses of the season. It's a lot. But wouldn't it be great to bring that on-ice practice experience home that's fun, fits into your schedule, and that's affordable? If you said yes, which I'm sure you did, you've got to check out NHL Sense Arena. It's a top-tier virtual reality training game that brings the on-ice practice experience home so you can practice anytime and anywhere, literally. You can transform any part of your home into a virtual ice rink where you're getting unlimited access to over 100 drills, training plans from top coaches and players, weekly drill challenges, and more that focus on improving hockey sense and physical cognitive skills, starting at just $33 per month. That is a lot cheaper than an hour of ice time. The physical side of hockey gets a lot of attention, but we don't focus enough on the mental side of it. It's something we talk about on this show all the time. NHL Sense Arena provides an immersive solution for players to sharpen those skills when ice time is limited or not affordable and they want to get those extra reps in. So for our listeners, NHL Sense Arena is offering an exclusive $50 off their annual plan all you got to do is head over to their website, hockey.sensorina.com. Again, hockey.sensorina.com and use our code hockey never stops and you'll level up your off-ice training by using NHL Sensorina. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for supporting us and NHL Sensorina. Enjoy this episode of Our Kids Play Hockey. Hockey friends and families around the world, and welcome to yet another edition of Our Kids Play Hockey. As always, I'm joined by Mike Benelli and Christy Casciano Burns, and I am joined also today by Bruce Berglund. Bruce is the author of The Fastest Game in the World, Hockey and the Globalization of Sports, which is, putting it lightly, a very, very enjoyable history of our game from a global perspective. Uh, Bruce was more than qualified to write this book, having taught college history for two decades in addition to being a well-seasoned author of multiple history books, including several for young readers via the Capstone Press, uh, Bruce grew up in Duluth and currently lives in St. Peter, uh, St. Peter's, excuse me, Minnesota, a uh, hockey area, obviously, and we're privileged to have him here today. Bruce, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's it's our pleasure to have you. So, Bruce, what I love about this episode is you sent me the book. I've been through the book. Uh, so I have written, as Christy will tell you, some very extensive questions, probably more than I've ever written before. Uh, for anybody on this show. But the first question is an obvious one, and we have to start with it. What inspired you to write this book? How long did it take? What, where did you go? Why did you do it? Give us the inside scoop of why, I'm going to show it again, why this book exists. Well, so the origin of this book actually comes out of uh, a podcast. I used to, way back in the early days of podcasts, I hosted a podcast called New Books and Sports. And I interviewed a historian, uh, who, uh, an English historian who was writing a history of the 1972 Munich Olympics. And afterwards, he said to me, he said, wow, your, your questions show you really know a lot about sports history. And I, at that point, I'd just been dabbling in, in research in sports history. And he said, uh, I'm working on a series for the University of California Press. We want people like you who have expertise in different world regions, who know languages, who've traveled to do research, to write books about sports history in those particular areas, looking at how sports connects with politics, economics, and culture. 
And so he and I bounce some ideas back and forth. My area of specialty as a historian is, is Eastern Europe and Russia. Uh, so that's where I've done my research. I've, I've, I've had the unfortunate task of having to do a lot of work in Prague, you know, which is really <laughs> a, a difficult part of my yes. job. Yes. So, uh, so I go there to do research. And of course, Prague's a big, uh, or Czech is, is, you know, a big hockey country. And I was there, in fact, in, in 1998, when they won Olympic gold at, at Nagano. Oh, wow. And uh, so we went back and forth. We said, hey, how about a book about hockey, which is really is the sport I grew up with, the sport that I know best in terms of, of the lore. Uh, and, and we looked at doing a world history of hockey, something that hadn't been done. So there, there is another global history of hockey uh, by two historians who focus on Canadian and American history. Right, right. Uh, my specialty is European history. And so this is the first history of hockey uh, with research based on European libraries and archives and materials from different languages and so forth. So back to your question, how long did it take? It took about five years and, and some change from the first interview I did, uh, the first times I went into archives in Minnesota uh, to when the book came out of the box. So, uh, which is actually pretty, when it comes to an academic book with, with this kind of, of research where you have to go to different countries, uh, that was pretty quick. So I was, I was, once I got going on it, I was really excited. So it was a lot of fun. It looks like it was a lot of fun. And you know, what's funny, and you actually referenced this. So first off, I, I have to say, if you haven't been to Prague or the Czech Republic, Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful yeah. area. It's otherworldly when you really yes. think about it. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the 98 Olympics. Uh, for those of you who listen to the show, know Yami Yager is my favorite player, but Dominic Kosick was on that team. That was an unbelievable run. The first year the pros were allowed to play in the game. Um, but the other book that, that I think you're referencing, perhaps not, but the, the, the most familiar book about the history of the game is usually uh, Hockey, A People's History. Um, mm -hmm. They made a great documentary on this, I think, in the, in the CBC up in Canada. Uh, it was fun. But as you said, it was extremely North American centric, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they did mention the Soviet Union because you really can't tell a story about hockey without the Soviet Union. But this leads perfectly into my next question. And that's the tendency is to believe that the game is only played in northern areas where it's cold. But your book points out this is clearly not the case. So where are some of the most obscure places the game is played that will surprise our viewers and listeners and maybe even that surprised you? Well, when you go down, you know, so the IIHF, the International Ice Hockey Federation, uh, organizes the men's and women's world championships every year, but there are multiple tiers of these world championship tournaments, right? And when you get down to the lower tiers, you see tournaments that are being hosted in Mexico City, right. in Dubai, uh, Australia has, uh, Australia has been to the Olympics in hockey, if you can believe that, right? So uh, hockey is played in, I believe the tally is now we have uh, 50 men national teams uh, and I think 46 women's teams affiliated with the IIHF and this is really a recent term you know even as late as the 1960s hockey was still mainly in Europe North America Japan had a team right. uh, Australia South Africa had a team so it's it's really been within the last two three decades that hockey has spread to uh, to countries you could say in the south and each year there are there are new countries that are starting teams starting programs and gaining membership into the IIHF. It's exciting to hear that and I know you've done extensive research uh, delving into the history of hockey when you look at different versions of hockey how far back does it go Bruce I'm really curious about that. 
how far back? So there is a Dutch landscape painting from the uh, 1600s, which shows the scene. So imagine the scene in the Netherlands in winter, uh, windmills, a frozen canal going through this village, and down in there, there, there are a bunch of skaters all on the uh, on the frozen canal. You know, children, older people, people dressed to the nines, and so forth. And down in the corner, you see this guy with a hockey stick, actually with what we would think of as a bandy stick, right? A stick right. that's, it's a shorter stick and the blade is, is curved and he's standing with a ball and he's just kind of got this little grin on his face. It looks like he's practicing his stick handling. So you have evidence like that of a, of a game we could say is uh, uh, an ancestor of hockey. Uh, if skating really begins in the Netherlands in the 1500s and the 1600s, and as soon as people take to the ice on skates, they start playing games with, with a stick and a goal and some type of projectile. Uh, the games that look, you could say, uh, look more like the hockey world familiar with, the Canadian version of the game, we see this beginning in the 1800s. So already in the early 1800s in England, uh, you have the beginnings of, of what we would recognize as bandy, where you're playing on a surface about as big as a frozen soccer field. You have 10 or 11 players on a side. Uh, and we have plenty of written descriptions of these games throughout the 1800s. And, and all of the skills that we appreciate in hockey in terms of speed, stick handling, passing, shooting, defense, all of these were elements of this, this early version of hockey in England in the 1800s. And they use the names interchangeably. They use the words both bandy and hockey to describe it. And so this is the game that then spreads into Europe, this English version of hockey. And really it's the version that spreads to North America, to both colonial, uh, colonial United States and colonial Canada in the early late 1700s, early 1800s. And it's from that root that we have the beginnings of the Canadian game in the late 1800s. Wow. That's impressive. You know, it, it, I'm glad you bring up England. I'm going to skip forward to this question because, <laughs> as Bruce knows, I coached in England and I lived yeah, in England yeah. for several years. Um, you know, and what's funny is when I tell people I coached in England, I'm often asked, they have hockey in England? And as you just confirmed it, you know, it may, may have started there in many ways. Um, but I always reply, look, they have great hockey in England and all across Europe. Um, so, you know, for this book, you conducted, you conducted, excuse me, interviews in multiple languages and multiple countries. So most of us have a national view of the game, the NHL, maybe the AHL, ECHL, SPHL, especially when you're listening to this show, but try and give us, if you can, the perspective of someone who sees this game globally, because that is one of the most fascinating aspects yeah. of the game. And when I traveled and again, little known fact, right? One of the oldest games, annual games played in history takes place in England every year with Oxford. Yes. Yes. Um, and it was funny when I was there because this game draws a massive crowd. Now, again, it's not NHL level over there, but people come from all over the country to see, well, I should say all of the countries, the four countries of England, their UK, to see this game. So uh, there's a tremendous amount of history of hockey outside just North America. But again, going back to the question, sorry, I, I digress there. Seeing hockey as a global sport, it's in the title of your book, what is that perspective like when it's not just the NHL? Yeah, so that's a terrific question. And what I wanted to get at, and, and 
what I learned when I was in Prague that year, the Czechs won in the Olympics, and I went to some games in, in the Czech League. I actually had a good friend who had played in the, in the Czech League back during the communist period. And so he kind of gave me an introduction into the arenas and a bit of the culture and some of the lore uh, of Czech hockey. And when you get into another culture, another national environment, you know, you see the the, the, the rules are the same, correct? Uh, there's everywhere there are Zambonis, correct? So there are many elements that are common to hockey. When you have a stoppage in play, everywhere in the world, they play ACDC between, <laughs> you know, during the stoppage in play. So there are some things that are universal. And yet when you get into different cultures, you see that there are uh, there are different twists. I remember going to a game with my Czech friend and he said right away, because he, uh, uh, he had played in Canada as well, he said, you'll notice that Czech fans swear a lot more in the stands. So, right. so he was kind of cueing me on, on, on some of these cultural differences. Um, so in taking a global perspective, what I wanted to do was to remind it, and it seems, you know, it seems it should be obvious to us, but it's not, is to remind people that there are players and parents and fans who are just dedicated to this game with the same passion, uh, with the same craziness, uh, with, with all of the love and the fascination that we have, whether in the Northeast or in Minnesota or in Ontario, and yet they're in South Korea right. or they're in Slovakia. And, and I think it, it helps our, or it heightens our appreciation for the game to get a sense of what draws us to the game are the same things that draw people in East Asia or Eastern Europe or in Australia to the game. And one of the things I wanted to get past is the sense um, the Canadians are guilty of this, Americans are guilty of it as well, okay. uh, is the sense, yeah, and so you, you kind of re referenced it, you know, yeah, there are leagues in other parts of the world, but it's not the NHL. Right. And so we have a tendency to dismiss the histories in other parts of the world because, well, it's not the level that we have in North America. We have the premier hockey league in the world. Therefore, this is the only league that deserves right. our attention. Well, I was going to say, and we're, we're not just guilty of dismissing that history when it comes to hockey. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. Across yeah. the board with that one. But yeah, keep going. Sorry. And, and I've had conversations with people. You know, I had conversations with, I have a lot of conversations along the lines you do when people hear, they have hockey in England, right? I, I heard they have hockey in Korea. They have hockey in Australia, right? So you get that, that's kind of, you know, people are perplexed. Uh, and then usually the next is, well, but it's not as good as in the NHL. So, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't deserve our attention. And, uh, and, and no, you know, I think that the, the sport is, I, I start the book with a quote from Ken Dryden from his great book, The Game, uh, where he says, you know, a game that is our national heritage, uh, it's not ours, right? You know, we don't, we don't possess that game. That's a theme throughout my book that I talk about, right? The, the idea that hockey is something, whether you're Canadian or you certainly from Minnesota, you see this a lot, right? The idea of, oh, you know, you guys out East, no, we, we know hockey better than you, right? So there's the sense of possession we have. And with a global perspective, what I want to do is to say, you know, we need to really appreciate how uh, all of these different facets of the game and in doing it and what comes out in the book is you really see how these different facets are interconnected, right? So how European hockey has influenced the development of hockey in North America and vice versa.
Right. You know, it, it's amazing the stuff that you're saying, because this is something that I run into. And it's funny in, in today's age that we're still having conversations about what belongs to us mm-hmm. when, you know, the world is flat, right? It's getting flatter mm-hmm. all the time. And it's amazing to me when people say, well, you know, they shouldn't be playing hockey in that Southern hot country. And I, I go, why? Or that why? Southern hot city of the United States, right? right? They yeah, should be that. playing hockey in Miami or Dallas or whatever. Right. Yep. You know, it, it, uh, ironically enough, the Florida Panthers have one of the highest attendances in the league this yep. year for the, fr- I, I made a joke on our page the other day, hell must have frozen over, but uh, it's obviously due to COVID, but uh, I, I never understood that argument. Now, I, I am going to toss Mike Benelli a, a line here because he desperately <laughs> needs one. I can see him looking at me. No, uh, Mike Mike is very well traveled within the game as well. Uh, I, I, I have I have gotten phone calls with Mike and it starts something like, hey, yeah, no, I'm in Norway, but I got to go over this with you real quick. Uh, but one of the things that I know Mike and I have seen traveling is, and this might be actually a surprise to a lot of the listeners, is that youth hockey development in other countries can sometimes be drastically different. That can be based on not a lot of people playing, but also the development factor of clubs, right? Like that was one mm-hmm. of the things in Europe and England that yeah. um, it probably shouldn't have shocked me just knowing how kind of soccer works in those countries or football, yeah. if you're listening in England or Europe. Um, but, you know, players belong to clubs and they grow up yeah. with these clubs. And a lot of the yeah. times, a lot of the time, the dream is to play for the big club. So, for example, I coached in Peterborough. There's a Peterborough youth system, and the dream of every one of these kids is to be a Peterborough phantom on the top club. Yep. There's not a lot, Mike, and this is what I want you to talk about. There's not a lot of jumping around to different teams, right? You're kind of with your club and you move on. But, Mike, I wanted to kind of tap your brain on that because said you've seen hockey in multiple countries. And then make sure if you have any questions for Bruce based on that, we get to that, too. Yeah. So, well, uh, you know, certainly, I mean, I've seen, and I think Bruce hits the nail on the head about, you know, that I've done work with your Australian, you know, youth hockey development. We're doing right work right now with Malaysia, uh, which is actually really growing, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, quite substantially. I mean, with the, uh, the advent of even China, you know, doing more work with like Wayne Gretzky and branding their products. Mm-hmm. I know when I did some work with the Panthers, uh, you got, you probably know the date, but uh, they did, I think there was an NHL game in Puerto Rico. I think it was the Rangers was. and was. and the Panthers, you know, Same trying way. to, you know, trying to bring the sport, you know, outside of the U S and I, I think, you know, and maybe you can talk about that, Bruce, about your research, about the club aspect, because I think in Minnesota, it's as close in our, mm-hmm. you know, area of, of North America that replicates that club feel yeah. and that town feel that, you know, the biggest thing a Minnesotan youth hockey player wants to do is play in the Minnesota hockey state championship in high school. Right. Yeah. I mean, the NHL is, is like a whole nother thing. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe you could talk about a little bit about when you see, you know, as the sport progresses, you know, have, did you find that a lot of the cultural things that these other countries are trying to do are actually, you know, maybe the wrong way? We should be replicating what they're doing as far as club programming goes. Yeah, that's a terrific question. Uh, one of the things that I do at the start of the book, I used to teach a course, a college course on the history of world sports. And a question that would always come up, I'd have kids, you know, play at hockey, a lot of kids who are soccer fans, world soccer fans. And one of the basic questions is, you know, what, what's the deal with clubs? You know, what, and and why don't we have clubs in our perfect, we call them clubs, but they're, right. they're not really clubs. And so one of the basic things I would have to explain to students, and this is, you know, gets back to the 19th century, right, is to explain the difference between clubs and franchises, right? So still uh, Bayern Munich and Barcelona are, function as clubs, right? People, people are members of these clubs. 
uh, in contrast to the franchises that you have in North American professional sports. And so in the book, I talk about how these two distinct systems develop. Okay, now fast forward into, you know, the, the current period. And what we're seeing is uh, the North American model has influenced the club model a lot more. So you do see, and this was, a, this was an interesting point about how hockey in Minnesota is analogous to this club system. And this is really what I grew up with. Herb Brooks said, uh, and this was shortly after, this was still when he was coaching in the NHL with the Rangers. He said, of all the things I've experienced in hockey, winning in the Olympics, uh, coaching the Rangers, uh, winning NCAA titles at the University of Minnesota. Still, the biggest thrill for me was playing in the Minnesota State High School Hockey Tournament. So you're exactly right. There's that sense of community that bound Minnesota hockey players. You'd rise up through these, these house teams. Maybe you'd have a traveling team in your community. But the aim for these kids, and I remember it, this was my dream, right? My dream was to play for my high school team and hopefully to go on and play at the Minnesota State High School Hockey Tournament. So now you see, uh, and I'll switch over to Europe. That's kind of what you see in Europe, right? You start out as a, as a squirt, as a mite with your local club team. And your hope is to eventually play for the, the top division team uh, with that club. That system is now starting to break down in Europe. And I talked to uh, some club managers and I talked to some scouts who work in Europe. And what you're seeing now, similar to what we see in the States, is that parents will recognize, hey, my kid will have a better opportunity of moving up if he moves to that club over there, okay? And um, club managers, they're pretty savvy entrepreneurs. And so they'll say to parents, hey, uh, we'll give you more ice time if you come over and play for our club and we'll pay, you know, and this is the way the European system works in hockey as well as in soccer, right? If you move clubs, even if you're a 14 year old, you have to pay a transfer fee, right? So managers of one club will say to a kid and his family, you'll get more ice time with us and we'll pay your transfer fee. Okay, so there's a lot more movement of players among clubs with the same and, and you, you're all hockey parents, right? So you know how this motivation, right? I, my child is going to get uh, more ice time, more visibility uh, if he or she moves over to this team over here. So that's starting to come into European clubs. The other thing that's starting to, well, one thing I should say too, and this is, I think it was Lee who made this point, you know, the, the ideal of my goal is reaching the top team for my club. That's starting to break down as well. That's true. That's and true. you see, and maybe you ran into it in England, it is certainly the case in the Czech Republic, Finland, and Sweden, where the ultimate goal is to play for, for a, a boy, is to play in the NHL. And uh, uh, an NHL scout who works in Europe, he told me directly that parents see their top domestic league as the fallback. Right. If my child plays for the top league in the Czech Republic or in Sweden, you know, the main aim is the NHL. That's our goal. Uh, if they don't make the NHL, you know, they'll be good enough to play in, uh, um, you know, the SM Liga or um, the Superliga in, in the Czech Republic. So so that's starting to come in as well. And the last thing that's starting to seep in into Europe, you know, so these clubs, particularly in the Nordic countries in Finland and Sweden, they receive a lot of state support still. Uh, they receive a lot of, of subsidies 
from the government, you know, something that's entirely absent from hockey in, in North America. But even though the cost of playing for your club is largely covered, parents are wanting to, same thing as parents in North America, they're wanting to get more ice time, more practice, more training, more tournaments. And so parents are looking for kind of outside opportunities, whether they're summer academies or summer tournaments, and those cost money. Right. So, so the price is rising for hockey, even in countries, you know, where we think of having social democratic policies where sports is largely paid for. All right, so yeah. do, do, can I just one thing, sorry, Lee. Yeah. I, I just, so on, on, that, on that side, Bruce, I mean, do you think that, you know, as you watch the breakdown of the club structure mm -hmm. happening in Europe, obviously because of the globalization, right? All these kids, yeah. and, and now we have scouts over there and say, listen, I can get you in the US NCAA yeah. prep yeah. school. You're seeing more and more prep school kids, yeah. you know, that are European kids that are, that are you know, from Sweden, Norway, yeah. Finland. And I think, you know, do you, do you see that that's even happening where, you're starting to see more specialization mm -hmm. uh, younger. Like I know I do a lot of programming in, in Norway and in their mantra and, and the ability to have their kids continue to play multiple sports. Uh, I mean, competitively yeah. all the way through 14, 15 years old is disappearing. And they're, they're specializing these kids early and earlier, but I think their populations aren't as big. So all of yeah. a sudden it yeah. squeezes that talent level uh, to, to where a kid might have to say, well, I'm the best kid out here now. I need to move on to a different club. Yeah, uh, I've heard stories both ways, and you and you probably know more than I do in terms of the work you do. I've heard stories both ways from the, the people I talk to in Europe, uh, concerns about over-specialization that kids are being pushed too early into hockey. And also, uh, uh, I remember talking to uh, one guy who was a coach in Finland, and he was saying, you know, really the strength of the model we have in Finland and in Europe is that we still have kids playing multiple sports and that kids exercise, their, you know, they play, they play soccer, they play uh, what have you, they run. Uh, and so we still have that um, as an integral part of our, our sports development system over here. So I've heard, I've heard both, uh, both versions, but I know that there is this concern. And, and looking back in the history, uh, one of the things you see in Europe, in particular in Sweden and Finland, is a movement away from, at the top level, right, the top level hockey players, a movement away from them being top level tennis, hockey, soccer players to, and, and the pressure for this was the Soviets. The Soviet national team was so good that the Finnish and Swedish federations realized we need our guys to just devote themselves to hockey if we're gonna be able to compete in international tournaments against the Soviets. All right. You know, what's amazing about the international circuit, if you wanna call it that, is a few things. You run into different styles of parenting, different mentalities, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, and I, there's a funny story, I don't know if I've told this on the show before, but when, when I was coaching in England, um, the head coach and my, my other assistant coach who was coaching with me um, were both from Russia. And the assistant coach, who was the father of the head coach, actually played for the Soviet B team in 1980, oh. right? So um, what was funny about that, Bruce, is the greatest story that I can tell in hockey, I can't tell that story in the locker room ever because this is an insanely bad memory for my assistant coach that I'm working with. He doesn't want to talk about the 1980 Olympic yeah. team because they beat his team. Right. Yeah. So um, it was funny because he and I had a lot of debates mm -hmm. on the bus. I'll never forget this about uh, the right mentality to win. Now, you know, yeah. I would, as an American, I was taught to dream. 
as yeah. an American, I was taught, you know, you can believe in yourselves and you fight for everything. Yeah. And um, yeah. he, he, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, he's one of the best tacticians I've ever worked with, had much more of a nose to the grind, hard work. If you do not scape them to death, they will not win type attitude. And to be yeah. fair, like the merge of these two yeah. styles is really what led to us being successful. But when you look at the international hockey circuit, you, you uncover amazing things. Like one, one of them, uh, another quick story, when you look at Australian hockey, uh, you know, Australian winners are opposite ours, Yeah. right? So what would happen is we would get Australian imports in to play the winter season in England, and they would go right back to Australia to play. The, they were perpetually living in winter forever, mm -hmm. uh, but mm -hmm. they would play literally pro hockey year round, right? Yeah. So like you hear yeah. these amazing stories, uh, but this is leading me into a question. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, and one of the fascinating aspects of global hockey is its ability to, to lasso uh, political and social issues, right? And in some cases, it's created hockey superpowers like the Soviet Union uh, from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. In other cases, it's brought countries together for a brief moment in time. You write about this in the book, North mm -hmm. and South Korea in the 2018 Winter Olympics, who made a joint team for the, anybody who knows geopolitics, that's unheard of for North yeah. and South Korea to do anything together. So why do you think that hockey, really more than any other sport, has this unique ability to integrate itself into the culture the way it does? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if I was go, would go as far as to say hockey more than any other sport. You know, you certainly see this in soccer, right? There sure. are numerous stories of, uh, I mean, in Central America in the 1970s, two nations went to war after that's a World true. Cup qualifying match, right? So, uh, so you do see this in other sports. Uh, I think, um, and this would be an American perspective, Right, where you acknowledge as much as hockey has grown as in a sport, as a sport in terms of participation, in terms of NHL teams uh, around the country in the South and so forth, hockey is still a, a niche sport in the United States, right? Um, and so I think it's surprising to us from an American perspective when hockey has such a prominent influence or such a, a, a noticeable connection to politics and to larger issues. I, th I think we're surprised at, wait a minute, baseball is the more popular sport, right? Shouldn't that be more connected with politics or, or, or soccer is more popular? Shouldn't that be more connected? And so I, I think part of what we notice are those instances when, when hockey rises to prominence and connects with, with, uh, with political issues. And, uh, and that was the case when I went to, you mentioned the, the team in Korea. So I went for part of my research, I was in the Olympics or at the Olympics, not in the Olympics, uh, in Korea in 2018. And, and I went with the specific intent of researching the men's and women's Korean national teams who are gonna participate in the Olympics. Now, this was the first time ever that the IIHF had allowed the host country to get an automatic bid into the Olympic tournament. You know, usually the, the host country has to qualify like right. every other team. So the Koreans were allowed into the tournament and the Korean Federation, uh, so, so hockey folk are, are avid in Korea, the fans, the players, but it's a small community, right? I think there's only about what, 5,000 registered players. And so the Koreans wanted to build up a team that, that would compete or at least not embarrass the country during the Olympics. And so they brought over Jim Peck who had played for the, uh, played for the Penguins, for other teams in the NHL to lead the coaching of the men's team. Uh, they brought over Sarah Murray to coach the, the women's team. They imported some players uh, to, you know, Americans and Canadians for both the men's and women's team. And, and really, 
you know, up until this moment when the government, the South Korean government, along with the IOC and the IIHF, came up with this plan to bring 12 North Korean women's players onto the South Korean women's team, the hockey team had really been, uh, they hadn't been getting a lot of attention in Korea. So it was this political moment that brings up the, the, the profile. There's, you know, and I was over there at the time where the, it was just you know, 24 hour a day news about uh, the merging, the unification of, of, of the hockey team. And so it was, there was this element of how surprising it was. And some of the criticisms that Koreans made, South Koreans made to this move was the fact that they said, you know, you'd never do this to the men's team, right? You'd never integrate North Korean players onto the South Koreans men's team. And so there was kind of this, this sense of, of hockey was a uh, unique unheralded sport in Korea in terms of representing Korea. And, and the government was engaged in some kind of, um, I don't want to say what's the word, uh, uh, you know, a two, a, a political experiment that they did. Right. And, and a few of the players on the team recognized it as such, as, as something of an experiment that uh, uh, disrupted their preparations for the games. It goes to show you that America is not the only place that is limited to politi politics infiltrating yeah. sport. Yeah, right? yeah uh, certainly. It's, it's a global thing. Um, switching gears a little bit here, uh, one of the passages in the book I really enjoyed was uh, titled Girls Take the Ice, which yeah. uh, leads, in, leads into other stories of young women uh, as they pave the way for the modern women's game. Uh, mm -hmm. And what resonated with me as the father of a daughter Mm -hmm. was that the road was really started by parents who, and you hear this, one of their daughters that have the same opportunities yeah. as their sons, right? And that's yeah. exactly how you wrote it in the book. Um, and we've seen the women's game take major strides, um, especially over the past couple decades now, mm -hmm. uh, with the advent of the NWHL, the Dream Gap Tour, um, obviously women's hockey in the Olympics, uh, internationally it's growing all the time. So what stories stood out to you most when researching this side of the game? And you know, where do you see the women's game going? Yeah, so that's a, a key line in writing about the development of women's hockey, of girls and women coming into the sport, of parents saying, we want our daughters to have the same opportunities as our sons, right? Which, which now in the, in the current day and age, that just seems as plain as the nose on your face. I go back to, uh, I talk about in the book, the story of Abby Hoffman, who played as a peewee in Toronto back in right. the 1950s. And when she did this, so she cut her hair, uh, she was called Abby. So she, she passed herself off as a boy and then was discovered to be a girl after she'd been elected to the all-star team and so forth. And, and this becomes national news in Canada, becomes international news. And they would interview her parents and her parents were depicted in the press as being, uh, you could say these, these progressive, uh, even radical parents, but they said exactly this. They said, we want our daughter to have the same opportunity as our son, okay? So in the 1950s, this is presented as something radical. By the time you get to the 1980s and certainly into the 1990s, when, when you, in the 80s, when you have the first girls playing hockey, and then in the 90s, in the mid 90s, when it really takes off, parents over and over are making the same statement. We want our daughters to have the same opportunities as our sons. And one of the things I, I was trying to bring out in the book is, and you all know this, right? Your hockey parents. Hockey parents are really not known for being 
the most uh, politically lefty group of people out there, correct? Right. Yeah. So, so we can't associate this, this rise in girls' participation in hockey. We can't connect it with feminism, with progressive politics. Instead, what I was trying to present is you have a shift in the culture so that this whole notion of our daughters should have the same opportunities as our sons. This becomes something that is widely respected. It's no longer a feminist or a progressive position as it was back in the, in the 1950s. And what I try to do in the book is to connect it to a number of different uh, social, cultural, and especially economic changes that, that happen at the time. Uh, so that's in terms of looking in the background, that's, uh, that's one of the bigger trends I, I look at. In terms of the direction the women's game is going, um, you know, in writing the book, and when you write a book like this where you're finishing today, you're always, you know, I, I'd be writing something and then I'd have to erase it and change it based on events that were coming up in the news constantly, right? So there were always things, and I think it was at the, at the time that I was f finishing the book uh, that you had um, uh, the, the statement, the protest statement by over 200 women's players, pro women's players who were demanding the creation of a viable uh, women's league in North America. And, and it was really a trick to kind of figure out how, because this is important, this needs to go in the history of hockey, right. how to get it in and work it in in a way that's meaningful to the story that uh, story that I've told. And, and I do that in the epilogue, I, I hope so, at least, by looking at women's hockey in this broader international context, right, what I've been doing throughout the whole book. And, and one of the things I try to present is how, and I, and I got this in interviews with European women's players who would talk about the, the really the woeful facilities, the lack of, uh, the lack of funding, the lack of media attention, so American and Canadian women's players will talk about that in the North American context. When you look at it in the European context, there's just a huge, huge divide in terms of the state of the women's game, in terms of the, the resource base for the women's game in North America, as opposed to Europe. And, and this is something, and I did bring it up with women's hockey officials, uh, and, and they recognize this is, uh, this is the big struggle. And it's something that they work steadily at. And it's just a matter of trying to get publicity, trying to get uh, the leaders of federations in European countries, European countries to recognize the value of the women's game. Uh, and this is, this is, you know, in North America, I would say in the future, what you're going to see is, is a struggle to get more media attention for women's hockey, right? Uh, what you're going to see in Europe is just the struggle to get basic resources and funding and support and an acknowledgement that women's hockey is a, a valuable path for young, for girls, for young women who want an athletic pursuit. As uh, one Finnish professional player said, you know, back in my home country, you tell people I'm a hockey player, they're like, Get, you know, get a real job. You know, why do because in Europe, because in Europe, so going back to the question or uh, the answer I gave earlier about male players moving from club to club, right? This, the aim is you get to the NHL and you get your payday or you play in your domestic league and you get your payday, right? In European women's hockey, there's not the payday at the top. And so therefore for a lot of parents, there's a sense of well, why would I encourage my daughter to go into 
my athletic daughter to go into hockey when there's no payday, when she could go into track or she could go into tennis where there is a payday at the top. Yeah, well, Christy lives this. Um, you know, this is her story, right? In, in, in Syracuse, New York, with her daughter and and finding right, Christy. I mean, just it's the exact same story right there in upstate New York. Yeah, and and there's still a lot of inequity, pay inequity, when you think yeah. about what the women are paid versus what the men are paid. Um, you don't get the fans in the stands that you do at the yeah. NHL, you do the women's pro leagues, and also just on a smaller level. Our girls won the New York State Championship. The mm -hmm. boys won medals. The girls got a banner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I would hear the, in, in the yeah. interviews I did, I heard that so often. Uh, one, of, I, one of the interviews I remember uh, most tellingly, you know, Lee, you asked about some stories that stand out. Uh, when I was in Korea for the Olympics, I met Florence Schelling, who was the goalie for the Swiss national team, you know, just terrific, terrific goalie with long career. She'd played college hockey in the States uh, with the Swiss. They won the bronze medal at the Sochi Olympics. Uh, and she talked about how she came back from, came back to Switzerland after the Sochi Olympics, her and her teammates have medals. She said she pretty much worked on her own to organize a hockey day in Switzerland for girls. And she said, I got no help from the Federation. And, the, you know, they did not give me an ounce of help. And, and I, I said, can I can go on the record with that? You know, she was, she had some curse words thrown in you know, to, to indicate the level of her, uh, her anger with the Federation. And she said, they know how I feel. And they, they just, they just don't help. So uh, it's, it's, yeah, I think it's, you know, one of the stories I tell Lee, you, you talk about that, that section uh, of the book where girls take the ice and I open it with this text conversation I had with my sister. I had a sister, you know, who's three years younger. And it was just when I was writing this book where I thought, I wonder if my sister had wanted to play hockey. She'd played broom ball, which was the organized sport for girls in Minnesota when, when we were younger. So I text her and say, did you want to play hockey, you and your friends? And she texts back right away. OMG, yes, you know, exclamation point. Of course. Right. And, right. and I remember, you know, I remember when, when girls hockey took off in the, in the 90s. And I remember having the sense of, and I write about this in the book, of, of it was like my, my ignorance had been revealed of having the sense of, why couldn't we have done this all along, right? right. Why, why couldn't we have had girls on the, on the rink all along? You know, the, the, best athlete in my neighborhood was was a girl named Laura she would have been a fantastic addition right. to our team right. but the boys certainly didn't think this the coaches certainly didn't think this and and even the girls accepted what they all called an unwritten rule that that the girls played broom ball the boys played hockey uh there was one girl in Duluth when I was growing up who who played on a boys team and that was it yeah you know Bruce I'll tell you obviously a lot of this for men probably deals with when you were born, when you grew up, right? A lot of the preconceived mm -hmm. notions, you know, uh, I was very fortunate to grow up in a house with a very strong woman. I'm married to a very strong woman. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've always seen women just on the same. It, it's never been mm -hmm. a thing for me to see it as different, right? That's yeah. just the way I was raised. Um, but even to your point, especially over the last five years, um, I've been, I've been aware that I've been ignorant about yeah. certain things. Right. And, mm -hmm. and you start asking questions. I remember asking my wife, like, did, did something like this ever happen to you? And she goes, of course, I never had thought to even ask. Yep. Right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, but one of the things in youth hockey that we talk about a lot on this show, and, and you know, Christy obviously would love your thoughts on this too, is that, um, and, and you, you said this, right? There's so much focus on the monetization and the payday, yes. mm-hmm. and we're just forgetting the basic life skills yep. that the game yep. can teach, right? Yep. And that, that is the real value. Uh, you know, there are so many studies globally yep. that show that any human that plays mm-hmm. sports is yep. better prepared for life. My wife was a basketball player and she'll tell you like that, that taught me teamwork. She's a doctor now. Yep. Right. Um, it's, it's one of those things of, you know, it's very easy to lose sight of that. Um, I will say that, uh, you know, I'm a younger coach when it comes to youth hockey, I've mostly did professional hockey, but in youth mm-hmm. hockey that I don't see much pushback anymore, at least on the surface level. I yeah. know there is yeah. in terms of, well, girls don't do that. Right. That I know that yeah. must happen all the time still. But uh, it's the little things to push the game forward of, man, I, I want my daughter to have the same opportunities as my sons, but I also yeah. want her to, to gain the massive experience yeah. that you gain from youth sports, right? So I, 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 for all our listeners and viewers, like that's the big takeaway from, for me. Um, and and yeah. it starts with little things. I'll give you a great example, right? Um, something that, that um, this was actually troublesome for me this year, but I have grown up playing this game and I always say, let's go boys. Come on, boys. Let's do it boys. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and there was a, there was a young girl on the, uh, my, my Adams team this year. And it w- I, I was very conscious of it and I was really having a hard time not saying boys. Right. So I started saying friends, but I, I had to rid yeah. that out of my vocabulary. Yeah. Um, and it just goes to show you, you don't even realize sometimes. And, and again, like, I'm not trying to say like I'm a big proponent or, or anything like that. I mean, I'm all for women's sports, obviously, but even yeah. I have problems with these preconceived things that go through history. So yeah. um, let me, let yeah. me spin this real yeah. quick to get into a question. Cause one of the parts I loved, and this is something you opened my eyes up to, like I grew up idolizing Cameron Granado. I did mm-hmm. 1998 mm-hmm. Nagano. I loved her. She was captain. She was team, you know, captain America. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I viewed her. She was an inspiration to me. And I love how you write that her parents you know, this is the Granado family too. They're not like a, they're not a non-hockey family. They tried to give her figure skates to try and get her out of the game. And, and if anybody knows Cameron Granado, you can imagine her be like, nah, that's yeah, not for yeah. me. Yeah. Um, but you know, I never thought about the struggle of that first generation yeah. Olympic hockey players that were women of what they must have had to go through, and then how important it was for them to represent the game in 1998. And really, I mean, any hockey player in professional women's hockey always goes back to that team now is like, that was, that was the, the, the standard. Yeah. Right. Um, but again, oh, sorry, I'm rambling now. My, my point was, is that, that, that women in the game, young girls in the game, it's all about the development. Right. I mean, yeah. I think we can all agree on that. And that's, that's probably what we should be focused on. Yeah. So you made a key point in how we still have, even in new sports at the lowest level, and this is a lot of what drives the craziness. You know, when you were, uh, you had the episode a few uh, few weeks ago about how do you recognize a hockey parent? And the underlying theme in all of your answers was because we we deal with the crazy, right? <laughs> but, but there's craziness in youth sports and all sports, right? So my kids were most involved in, uh, in baseball actually. And, and you'd see this in baseball really at, you know, the 10 year old level. And it was the sense uh, that the ultimate aim for these parents watching their sons play baseball was that they were going to play in MLB, or if not that they were going to get a scholarship to for college. Right. Right. And so this is the ultimate end. And a lot then what gets lost 
is the sense of it's about development and it's about uh, it's about the skills that will be beneficial later later in life. And you talked about these studies and studies show that that for girls even more than boys, right. the 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 worth of participating in sports is is all the more important. So. Uh, but yeah, we can't. And and as parents who have kids in sports, we can say, yeah, I understand. No, no, my child won't get a scholarship. You know, yeah, that's ridiculous to say my child will will make it to the pros. We acknowledge that, but we can't. Uh, it's really, really difficult to change our behavior in a way that matches this recognition. I remember having a conversation with, with a dad who was at the baseball field and his kids played college sports, you know, played college baseball. They were fantastic athletes. Uh, but the dad, I remember he said, you know, this is crazy. I don't know why we do this. You know, why, why we're here all the time when we spend all this money. And it was kind of like he got this far away look as, as the realization was coming. Wow, this is really kind of crazy that we do this and then it was like he snapped himself out of it and, oh you know get get back in the program right so um no i think you're exactly right and and you know what you see with with girls hockey today it's the case in in north america it's certainly the case in europe is uh the struggles over ice time right, right. when our practice is scheduled and and that kind of you know what you've recognized uh those slights those subtle discriminations, you know, the, the foundation for it is the sense, hey, this is a boy, he can make it to the NHL. The girl, she, she'll, she could get a scholarship, but she's not going to make it to the NHL. You know, and I'm going to point this back to Christy because Christy's daughter is doing amazing things in NCAA D1. You know, when I played college hockey, I was focused on playing hockey. That was mm -hmm. it. That was my goal. And like you said, a lot of it was I had aspirations to play beyond college. Yeah. Christie's daughter is tackling major social issues and, <laughs> and tackling other aspects of the world outside of hockey. And this is someone knowing that the NHL is not in their yeah. future. Yeah. Right. So Christy, I do, I always like to highlight what your daughter's doing, but I did want to jump into that. Obviously get your perspective on this too. Well, it's, you know, it goes back to the basic lessons she learned when she started skating at age 30 and mm -hmm. got on her very first hockey team. It's all about selflessness and sacrifice mm -hmm. and being part of something bigger than just a team. Um, all of her teams have always, you know, reached out and done community service. And what I, what I love about hockey is that that spirit of this is more than just us playing a game. Mm -hmm. It's about caring about each other, looking out for each other, and all those wonderful life lessons. And as you pointed out, Bruce. It's not just your little ring, your little community, but mm -hmm. this is kind of felt all around the world. And that's yeah. what hockey can bring out the very best in our kids and in parents when yeah. it's guided the right way. You know, and the best lesson from hockey, right? What you get right away when you're a kid is you're gonna fall down and you need <laughs> to get up and you're gonna get knocked around and you get need to get back in the game. And, you know, I play senior league hockey and that's, when you're 52, that's an even more, more potent lesson, right? When you fall down, it's going to be really embarrassing. And when you're 52, you have a lot of trouble getting back on your skates, but you need to get back on your skates. That is a good lesson. Also, I love this story and the story of the underdog. And Bruce, I really want you to oh. talk about this because before any hockey tournament, we would always pop in the Disney movie yes. miracle. Yes. And 
you know, and our kids would never get bored of that story. And it would always rev them up right before a major tournament. Yeah. What, what fascinates me, I mean, the Soviet Union doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah. Yet this story still resonates mm-hmm. with me as a parent, with our kids. Um, and I think because it's the ultimate underdog story. Yes. I mean, if you think about it, you've got these ragtag yeah. blue collar college kids going up against yeah. professionals and defeating them, that ultimate yeah. win. And our kids, no matter you know how old they are, that story never gets old. I was wondering if you could kind of talk about the importance of that story still resonating today. Yes, that's a question I always get is why does the miracle on ice still resonate with Americans today? Uh, like you said, the Soviet Union is no longer here. Uh, and even for when, when I talk to a couple of the players, they still are somewhat surprised that, that it had, it's had this lasting resonance. You know, so for instance, the 1960 gold medal in hockey when the United States won in the Olympics did not have that same staying power within the culture, right? Even by 1980, you know, only 20 years, you know, not a lot of people remembered the the 60 team in the same way that we remember the 1980 team. And a big part of it uh, for me is, uh, and I talk about this in the book, is this team, they were real underdogs. They were real amateurs. Uh, You know, most of the players were college students that were coming right out of college. Uh, the Soviets were, they were professionals. They were played to pay, play hockey, to train for hockey year round. The year before the Olympics, they trounced a team of NHL all-stars in the Challenge Cup. So this was a top level professional all-star team. So these were amateurs. Uh, they were outmatched. Uh, they were, they were, um, The players were not year-round hockey players. And this is interesting when you look at your history. This is still an age when uh, one of the players had been recruited to play college football. Uh, Buzz Schneider had been a top uh, baseball prospect, right? So this was still the era of having an all-around athlete who also, who happens to excel in hockey. These were uh, kids from working class families. Uh, You know, their parents worked on the railroad. They were high school teachers. Uh, you know, Ken Morrow's dad worked in an auto plant. Mike Runizioni's dad worked in a restaurant. Uh, so this was a, a team of blue collar amateur guys outmatched and, and they win, right? They pull off this win. And, and what I talk about in the book is within American culture, right? And, and I've done lectures on this and I, t- I tell the audience, okay, think of the, the quintessential American sports movie. Okay, this is the audience engagement time. I'll ask you, you three, the quintessential American sports movie. Go ahead. You, you mean broad, right? What, what I think most people would say? Well, what would you say? Well, for me, so miracle, miracle, miracle but one. I feel the dreams, I'm guessing, is what most people would probably feel the dreams, right? Right. Mike, you got one? Bull Dorm, I like that. <laughs> Bull Dorm, I love okay. the natural too. That's one of my all-time. Yeah, the yeah. natural, right? Yeah. You'll, I'll always hear from people in audiences, you always hear Rocky. Right. Correct. I'm from Philly. Uh, I should, I, I'm, that's ingrained the in my blood. The Sandlot, sand right? I'm pointing in the direction that. you are, Christy, on my screen, whether you're there or not. The Sandlot, and I talk about this in the book, right? This is the only hockey book you'll read where I talk, where the author talks about the Sandlot. You know, the Sandlot is this quintessential American film, even more so than, than Rocky. If you think about it, you know, it's these kids from a rough background. They're playing on a dirt lot next to a junkyard, right? None of us would let our kids do this, right? Playing on a dirt lot next to a junkyard, 
they're just out there having fun. There's no organization, no adults. And the highlight of the film, right, or in the middle of the film, is that the rich kids come with their uniforms and their equipment and their shiny bikes, and they're going to have the big showdown. And the Sandlot kids trounce them, right, in the middle of the film. And we all are like, yeah, Sandlot kids, right? We all identify as Americans with the kids on the Sandlot. The point I make in international sports, Americans, we're the rich kids, right? <laughs> we're the dream team back in 1992, crushing everybody in the field. We're the US women's soccer team. Right. You know, in terms of in international sports, the United States puts far more money into the training of its athletes than any other country, right? And the results are we typically win the most, most medals. The 1980 Olympic team. So Americans in general, we identify with underdogs right? But the, the team in 1980, they were true underdogs. And really, in terms of international sports, they were the last American underdogs. Because after 1980, and I talk about this book, beginning in the 1980s is when you have a big shift in terms of how athletes are developed and trained. You know, another great thing. And you're killing, me, Smalls. you're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me, If you book him, he will be on the podcast. No, uh, another, another Christy, point. I just have to ask when you when your kids listen to when you watch uh, Miracle, do you all recite the speech, Herb Brooks's yes. speech? Yeah. Well, the the, be, the best is when the best is when my guys watch Miracle. Now you're, you're always hoping they're going to win. Like you're like I can't I can't believe we're winning this game. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Every time, every time, it's like you know you can watch it a million so times. Right. You're wondering if they're going to come they out. They gotta win. Yeah, they're gonna come that's because you haven't seen the film Miracle Two with a surprise right. ending. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you know, one of the one of the great things about just staying on Miracle for one more minute is uh, there's been multiple documentaries over the last five six years um, mm -hmm. about the other side of that mm -hmm. victory, right? So Red Army mm -hmm. was a really great documentary. Um, and one of the things that, I, it shouldn't have surprised me, but one of the things that's funny, and this is a great way to kind of actually round this entire interview, is that you kind of grow up thinking from these movies that not, I don't want to say Russia's bad, but like the Soviet Union was the enemy and mm -hmm. you beat them. And then you start hearing the guys from the Soviet Union talk about the game, not just the 1980 game, but that mm -hmm. entire team and, you know, Slava Fatisov. And there's this great national pride about being Russian. Yeah. And that how that game was a, a horrible scar. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, these guys are so proud to be Russian and play hockey in Russia. In England, a great story nobody knows about. England qualified for tier one world championships in the last round. And they were completely, by the way, slighted by their country. Because yeah. this was a huge, they're playing Canada, they're playing the United States. This hasn't happened before, mm -hmm. right? And, and you should hear the hockey players over there talk about, I'm so proud to be English mm -hmm. or Welsh or... Irish or Scottish, depending on what country they're from, from mm -hmm. in that country, as I always joke. Um, all around the world, you see this. Uh, you know, you can go to Czech Republic anytime from 1990 till 2017 and say, what's your favorite NHL team? They're going to say, whatever team Yager is on is my favorite NHL team, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or, or Hasek at the time. The, the, the point I'm making, and this actually leads perfectly into the last question that yeah. I have is that uh, the pride we have for our national teams or even our own teams is yeah. not limited to Canada and North yes. America. Yeah. Yeah. That is a global phenomenon. And, yeah. and what I loved about working in England, what I loved about it is the hockey fans in England, uh, especially in per Peterborough, were just as yeah. passionate as the fans yeah. in America or Philadelphia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right? there, there was no difference. The only difference was uh, 
you know, the Wells Fargo Center sits 20,000 people, Peterborough sat 1,000, right? But these people were just as crazy. So the question I have for you uh, is, can you speak for a moment just about some of the experiences you had with fans along your journey? You did a little bit earlier and how, uh, again, not to make a pun of your book, but this is a global game and it it is a beautiful, beautiful community really at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. When you're talking about England qualifying, I think it was at the tournament, the tier two tournament in Budapest. And I think I was at that tournament when they, I think I remember watching on the news when, when they won, if I'm remembering correctly. It was humongous. humongous And they were, you know, the, 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 the excitement of the fans, right? This was back in the day when you could still have fans at hockey games, you know, so all these people have trooped down from England to come to the tournament. They were waving their banners, they're waving your jerseys. And I was at that tournament in, in Budapest and it was fascinating to watch fans from all these Slovenia, Hungary, right? Hungary is not a country we, we consider to right. be a, a hockey country, right? And yet the fans were all decked out in their jerseys and they're wearing their scarves and there was this enthusiasm. And I saw that somewhat as well at the Olympics, right? That people would travel. I remember seeing German fans at the Olympics and the Germans ultimately go to the gold medal game, right? right? right. But you see, it was, it was in one of the early round games I see these German fans, you know, we were in the food tent and they had their jerseys on and they were all excited. You know, there were, there were uh, couples together and I thought, wow, these folk made the trip all from Germany all the way to Korea. They packed their jerseys, they packed their scarves and they're there with just as much fervor and enthusiasm as any, any Canadian or American fan. And that was really, yeah, that was exciting to see is just how this game fires people, fires people's emotions around the world. And I think that's, you know, getting back to the question you asked earlier uh, of, of what I see from a global perspective and, and what I hope people get is this understanding, yeah, wherever you go in the world where they play hockey, people, the people who play are drawn to it because it is, as you all know, it's a demanding game, right? And it's a fun game. Uh, and, and the people who watch it, it's an exciting game, right? And that's part of this appeal that, that gets to it around the world. So for us to claim in, in, you know, in Minnesota or up in, you know, New England or in Ontario that we have something of a monopoly hold on it, that's, yeah, that's, that's something that I'm trying to dispel in this book. And I want to add one thing, uh, you know, when you're talking about the national pride that people have, uh, I did have a chance to interview Dominic Hasek in the course of my research, which was just a, you know, a fun, fun <laughs> interview. I'll, I'll give you this one line, the fun guy. you know, yeah. so, so a Czech sports writer was telling me, I said, yeah, I'm going to go interview Hasek. And he said, yeah, Hasek, he's, uh, he's an interesting guy. <laughs> and I said, oh yeah, he's a goalie. You know, I know how goalies are. You all know how goalies are, right? And he said, no, on a team full of goalies, Hasek would be the goalie. (laughs) (laughs) So so anyway, I go to interview Hasek and we were talking about 1998. And this is something that doesn't end up in the book, but it's really, I thought, a poignant line, how he talked about, uh, and this was was the year they were celebrating the 20th anniversary of that gold medal at, at Nagano. And that gold medal came right at the time. There were a lot of political problems and economic problems in the Czech Republic. So just as in with the United States in 1980, this win in the Olympics was a huge lift for the country. And he said, I'm so proud that I was able to do that for my nation, that I was able to do that for the people of my country. And so it was interesting how he phrased it, not so much in his personal accomplishment. You know, Hasek knows he was the best goalie in the world in 1998. 
He didn't need the Olympics to prove that. Instead, he expressed gratitude that he was able to do that for the people of this country. And I find that really striking. That is extremely striking. And like, as you said, no one expected the Czech Republic to win that year, except mm -hmm. for the Czech Republic. And look, yes, exactly. look, looking back at it now, when you look at those rosters, it's a little more probably obvious than, yeah, than yeah. We, when we realized, but I think that's a, that's a dynamite way to end the show. But before we do, Christy and Mike, I do want to make sure you get the last word if there's any other comments, uh, but Bruce, no, this I has just, been great. You've been a, what a joy, fascinating. Um, I'm just so impressed by the amount of research you've done. And I, and I love the fact that you know, you put the history perspective in hockey because I've always been of the belief that you need to know where you've been mm -hmm. to know where you're going. So um, I'm going to get the book for my kids because I know they're going to read it from front and probably won't put it down because um, they love the game. And um, there's a lot of aspects that you brought up that mm -hmm. they had no, they have no idea. Mm -hmm. um, and I love the fact that you bring it all around the world and home for us too. Mm -hmm. So thank you, Bruce. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm just looking forward to part two. So let's, uh, let's, let's back on. No pressure. No pressure. All right. No pressure. <laughs> you, can you can tell three of us are authors. No, I'm just, I'm just teasing you, Mike. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'll tell you, I have the book up here. If you're watching, if you're, if you're listening, we'll put it on the website. Uh, but it's a history book, but it doesn't read like one. And if you can Thank see you. it here, it's got an awesome cover, by the way. This is something you yeah. want to like. Yeah, this is what I'm reading. It's uh, it's the fastest game in the world, hockey and the globalization of sports by Bruce Berglund. You can pick this up on Amazon. Uh, Bruce, any place else people should be looking for you? Uh, well, you can also get the, the audio version of the book just came out on Audible and uh, okay. which was, oh, it was so much fun to hear to hear an actor read read the book. So, uh, yeah, you know, long walks, long drives. I recommend the recommend the book for that. Yeah. Well, it gets five stars from me and recommended heavily. Uh, Bruce, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank today. you That's so much. No problem. It was a little bit of a longer episode, but I enjoyed every second of it. And we want to thank all of you for listening or watching to Our Kids Play Hockey. You can listen to this episode and other ones at OurKidsPlayHockey.com or as always, wherever podcasts can be heard. We are available. The show is growing. We are so happy that you're here with us. And uh, thanks for listening to this episode. For Christy Cashiano Burns, for Mike Benelli and Bruce Berglund, I'm Lee Elias, and we'll see you on the next edition of Our Kids Play Hockey. Have a great day, everyone. Mm -hmm.